With us today is Eric Horvitz, Microsoft's first ever Chief Scientific Officer. Eric joined Microsoft through the acquisition of his startup, Knowledge Industries, and has been with the company since 1993. His research spans theoretical and practical challenges with developing systems that perceive, learn, and reason. He's the company's top inventor with over 300 patents filed. He has been elected Fellow of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, Fellow of the National Academy of Engineering, Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He was a member of the National Security Commission on AI. He co-founded important groups like the Partnership on AI, a nonprofit organization bringing together Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, DeepMind, IBM, and Microsoft to document the quality and impact of AI systems on things like criminal justice, the economy, and media integrity. Welcome to the show, Eric. So great to have you here with us. It's great to be here, Peter, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Same here. So excited to get to chat with you. Now, maybe let's dive right into the topic that really piqued my interest this past week. I was just catching up again on everything you've been up to, which is the National Security Commission on AI. What is that commission and how you become part of it? So um, Congress established the National Security Commission on AI as an independent condition. Uh, they actually, uh, in legislation, said that this was going to was being stood up to consider methods and means necessary to advance the development of AI. Uh, they call that machine learning and associated technologies to comprehensively address the national security and defense needs of the U.S. That was the formal definition. Um, we had quite a bit of range in thinking through how to address that challenge. Now, there were 15 commissioners, as we were called. And interesting, if you look at the legislation, that was actually an algorithm as to who got to pick each commissioner. It surprised me that I was nominated to be a commissioner on the NSCAI study by Adam Smith, the congressman uh, who chaired the House Armed Services Committee. So he asked, you know, you nominated Eric Horvitz. I said, oh my gosh, what a, it's an interesting uh, responsibility. Let's dig in here. Uh, it was great. Uh, other commissioners uh, that I work with, uh, you, you know, your listeners will know well, Andrew Moore, uh, now at Google, former dean of CS at um, CMU, Steve Chen from JPL, Ken Ford, Bill Mark. And interestingly, we got you know, some other commissioners included uh, corporate leaders. So Andy Jassy uh, got to know quite well. He's now the CEO of Amazon. Safra Katz, CEO of Oracle, Bob Work, the um, former Undersecretary of Defense. It was quite an interesting interdisciplinary group um, of academics, uh, um, folks from industry uh, and government. And when it did its work, it wasn't just this group thinking through things on its own. We actually brought in quite a few folks to um, provide expertise, folks from you know, the AAAO organization, 100-year study on AI, multiple colleagues came to answer questions and provide inputs. Interesting. Now, you're charged with effectively studying security implications of AI, right? How do you go about that? And, and what, are, what are some of the 
main findings you had and recommendations that came out of this study? Well, let me just say that um, we took the, the, the phrase national security to mean something a bit broader, quite a bit broader than what you call security considerations. The vitality of our research endeavors, our industry, our education, our ability to, to attract top talent from throughout the world, making appropriate investments in R&D. And so it turns out that the security aspects of it uh, and, and the defense aspects might say are actually um, important, but a subset of the larger scope of what we deliberated about. The, the two lines of effort, we broke the study into several lines of effort. Uh, the two that I was most active in were the future of R&D, where do we need to make investments in AI, which is fascinating to deliberate about this. You're asked by the United States Congress, give us recommendations on where the science is going. And the other one was on trustworthy AI, thinking deeply about principles of robustness, uh, notions of ethics, appropriate engineering practices, and so on. And so it's a very large document at nscai.org. But if you go to the chapters on R&D uh, and the future of where the science is going, as well as the chapters on trustworthy AI and civil liberties, you'll see some of the work that my uh, particular subgroups were really um, focusing on, including the topics of, of where AI, AI was headed, you know, is, should, is headed. This document has had quite a big impact, more than I would have expected with scores of bills now in Congress. Uh, and I think some of them folks maybe have, have heard about. One direction on the, from coming out of the R&D work that we did was re recommending uh, significant bolstering of funds for basic science research, as well as applications and technology development in AI has led to a call in, in, in a bill right now to significantly increase funding to the National Science Foundation for computer science particularly focused on AI and related technologies. There's a standing up of a task force, uh, the National AI Research Resource, which is in full operation right now, um, trying to spec out what we need to do to provide the, the kind of resources that only a few companies have now for university-based research in the United States coming out of this work. Another um, call and recommendation led to NIST the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which we called out should be leading efforts in standards, um, is now leading the development of an AI risk management framework, came out of a call from the National Security Commission on AI. One interesting uh, recommendation that came out of this document suggested that we need to add a new directorate to the National Science Foundation, a technology directorate. Uh, you may have heard a little bit about this that's now um, being discussed and the potential funding for that significant new directorate is uh, a bill in Congress. And how do you distinguish technology from science? Where are you drawing the line when you're making that a new directorate? Interesting question. And we had lots of discussion and debate about that because today, most of the directorates, uh, let's just focus on, on computer science. SICE, the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate, has engineering in the title. Um, and they fund um, research projects that span both basic science, theory, as well as various kinds of prototypes uh, and um, artifacts that are created and tested. There's a sense that 
with fielding AI technologies in particular, quite a bit of the effort in translation is surprisingly not in the core science. Of course, you need that enabling pop to understand how to do things, but there's so much that goes into, in, into the, the challenges of integration and translation. I mean, just think about healthcare. We've had great diagnostic reasoning tools since the late 80s and before that you would call AI, even if it wasn't today's AI. Um, we had systems in my startup that we were fielding and selling to uh, healthcare organizations that were running at the level of like top experts in pathology across all 40 tissue areas, for example. Yet it was hard to get them to, to translate them into actual practice, the work into the workflow, for example. So you might say there's different aspects of engineering, but one piece of this is in how do you take the status quo world, great AI innovation, and think about the tech, the engineering need to do to, to, to with fluidity, integrate it in to make it a real positive presence to, to change things for the better. And that's, I view that as a hard technical challenge approaching a science. Right. And one thing that also comes to my mind, I like the example you gave, and I'm curious if it would be part of it in, in how you think about it is things like building a great open source repository that captures the latest advances in a certain direction. Because a lot of code in AI, somebody writes a paper, there's a one-off code release related to that paper, but there is no continuity. It's just really a sprawling of, of different things versus a clear repo you can go to and, and work with for many areas of AI. Yeah, so if you even look at, at the, um, the chapter we did on um, trustworthy and robust AI, we talk about engineering issues around the machine learning life cycle, documenting the data appropriately, understanding uh, metrics for doing um, testing. How do you document your, you know, which algorithm you use? How do you maintain a system over time? How do you understand um, issues around um, distributional drift? How do you continue to test? These you might say, no, these are part of our science, but to do this well, it takes infrastructure, best practices, execution on in the real world, in the open world, which is messy in a way where engineering plays a, a role, an important role. And it's an area where we can do a lot better as the world, as scientists, as engineers, and as companies figuring out and making th deeper investments in what I would call engineering. I couldn't agree more, Eric, and I hope this goes through, uh, that your recommendations get turned into reality. Right, and I, I just got off a call yesterday with the NSF, and there's excitement there about what this will mean uh, should it happen um, in, in building out a, a, a new potential directorate. Really cool. Now, maybe as a bit of context, because I think a lot of our listeners don't necessarily apply to NSF grants and know what's involved, but... I just looked it up again because I had a sense for it, but I wanted to be sure to get the right number. In IIS, which is the AI part of NSF, right? The funding rate of grant proposals for 2021 was 16%. So for every 100 proposals submitted, only 16 are funded. And if you've ever served on any of those panels, usually at least half of these submissions are great, sometimes even more than half of them. And so 50 or more out of 100 are great, but there is only funding for 16 out of 100. 
Let me just say that those numbers uh, were explicit in our conversations about what this nation might be doing kind of in, in a new Sputnik era when it comes to AI advances around the world and where we stand with our leadership in this space for the vitality of our technology, the education of our top talent, uh, and the systems we build in field. You know, Henry Couts oversees uh, a good friend uh, IAS right now, and he's on, on a, on a, I just had a call with him. And the idea of, of doubling the, the, the top prioritized grant proposals that you could fund would be a game changer. Uh, absolutely. And, and actually, our audience would be familiar from listening to Sergey Levin uh, in, in the first episode of this season. And when we asked Sergey, you know, if you could have a robot help you with anything in your life, what would you want that robot to do for you? And guess what he said? He said, write my grant proposals. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's such amazing. a tedious, uh, time-consuming yeah. thing to, to support your lab. And I think the other thing that's really interesting that you're saying is to support education, really. The science happens, but almost 100% of the money from these grants goes to supporting the education of PhD students and postdocs. That's where it goes. Um, and so it has a, a big effect beyond just the science itself. And in this National Science Security um, uh, Commission on AI report, there's a whole chapter on talent and education in, in this nation. You know, this we, we're trying to also, one of the comments was trying to counter this Fortress America approach you hear from some folks who believe that if we put a fence around the United States, we can protect our technology and so on. But the idea of openness and being a world player and being a, a top talent magnet for folks around the world is so important in our in our country's vitality. And I say our countries, because this was the focus of this document. It's all about not, you know, the United States and where we stood commissioned by Congress. Now, you worked on this commission, which was a US commission. You also have an independent effort that you co-founded, the first 100 years of AI report. And the second report yeah. just came out recently. So what made you decide? I mean, because at core, I've always known you as somebody who, who loves to do research, loves to dive into the technical specifics, loves to you know work on, on the next project. But there you are serving on Security Commission, founding the 100 Years of AI Report. What's driving you to effectively take time away from, from your research and starting this 100 years of AI report. It's interesting. We just had a dinner uh, salon recently. Um, we all tested with a very uh, advanced method to make sure we were Omicron free. But we went into this dinner uh, live 3D meal together talking about the role of AI researchers when it comes to socio-technical issues and responsibilities. One topic that came up was we could be researchers and just focus on the hard, interesting technical challenges and inform somebody else to do the, you know, who might be interested in being an activist to take action in the world. And we went back and forth about the importance of the AI scientists themselves diving in and taking this seriously and using their knowledge and their experience with the nuances and the, and the, and the frontier topics and the borders and understandings to help guide those discussions. And I tend to fall in the, in the latter. I think it's really important, especially given the, and I say more generally across computer science, not given the importance of our field in the world now, for folks in the field, experts in different areas to dive in themselves and think through what they're doing and the implications, because there's probably no one better 
than that to do that kind of work. And just going back a bit to where this all, this 100-year study came from. So I was AAAI president um, in 2008 and 9. AAAI, it's a kind of a long process. You're the, you're, you're, you do two years as president-elect, two years as president, and then two years as past president. And the job there is even harder, you know, fellowship, committees, and so on in some ways. And so during my presidency, I decided to make the theme of my term in office, AI in the open world. And it was just the time in 2007, 8, 9, where AI was becoming a real technology starting to influence um, actual decision-making in high-stakes areas. So in my presidential lecture, I called out the technology, first of all. What does it mean to go open world with our technology? There's a famous old problem in AI, the frame problem, which, which captures this challenge of do our systems know enough about state to take action in the world? Do they know the implications of their actions uh, given their bounded uh, representations and resources for computing uh, and models? And so in my talk, I largely talked about the technical issues because I've always been very excited about what does it mean? Uh, and maybe came up with my, my early readings of Herb Simon, for example. What does it mean to be a very limited, by definition, processor and reasoner in a really complicated universe? Uh, how do we, you do the best you can? How do you go bounded optimal uh, with your reasoning? And so I talked a little bit about in my lecture, and I'm trying to energize the audience that there's a technology here, the set of technical principles we want to think about on robustness, on um, systems that know what they don't know. The famous, I quoted the famous Lao Tse who talked about, you know, real knowledge is knowing what you don't know. And can we build systems that had this ability to be humble uh, where they needed to be humble and knew how to gather information actively where they needed more information and do the best they could. So there's a technical side to this. Then I mentioned AAAI was a kind of a closed group you used to have to log in to even get access to papers and be a member. And I made it the, the mission of my of my presidency to change that and turn that around, which we did against all this pressure, like, oh, we're gonna give up all of our membership because people won't have to, you know, be members to get access to the papers anymore. Well, it's, it, we did lose some membership over that, but I think it was worth it. And the third area I said is, we're gonna call do a study, we called it the first Asilomar study, and I chose Asilomar for symbolic reasons for the biomedical work that had gone on there, recombinant DNA in the 70s. But we basically created a, um, a presidential panel on long-term AI futures, we called it, with three working groups. All, you know, you can go to the, the, to the page on this, the AAAI, and see who was there at the time. It's a fun group. But people who I thought were like the top leaders in the technical side who would care. Uh, we had three different subgroups, one on short-term disruptive um, influences of AI, long-term AI futures, looking at, at the time, the singularity was being talked about. Ray Kurzweil was writing his, his books at the time. There was all this dystopian and utopian debate going on about where AI was headed. And then finally, we had a special breakout group in, in, in um, ethics and legal issues. And it was such a useful meeting, I thought. I was, we ended up, uh, we met for a few months and then all went to a cinema for three days. It was such a great meeting that um, about five years later, I was talking uh, with some folks from that meeting and we realized that was 2009 we did that meeting. And here we are in 2000, it was like 13, I think, four to five years later, 
And we said, we should do that again. And we thought about how to pull that off, like have that same group, should we do a mix? And it hit me that, you know, this is, of course, induction, N gets N, gets N plus one. Why not endow a study um, that will go on forever and track this technology and stay ahead of the crashing wave of where it's going and help to guide thinking, research, mitigations when necessary, engagements, interdisciplinary engagement, and so on. And so um, in talking with um, my wife, Mary, we thought about this might be something that we should invest in and help to find, looking for a home for it, the idea of an endowment that would go on for a long time and defining process that would be at least as high quality as the AAAI first meeting we did in the first engagement. And um, we talked to John Hennessy at the time, and, and, and you know, most people thought we were kind of crazy with doing a, um, an endless study. John Hennessy, with his reaction, he was president of Stanford at the time, he said, oh, my God, this is great. We'll just do it. And we had development officers getting kind of concerned. How can we pull this off? We can't guarantee this happened forever. And we call it a 100-year study, but that's just a, a, a name. Um, the commitment from Stanford is this will happen every five years for as long as Stanford exists. And as John Hennessy said, we hope that's a pretty long time. <laughs> so so we, we just hit the second study, and it's interesting to see um, how it's gone. And I think it's gone well. We talked about the importance of the second study even being more important than the first because as I was saying, two points to find kind of a trajectory into the future as to how the process is going to go and how valuable it's going to be. We can talk more about the actual study and, and how it works, but the, to kick it off, what I just did was I wrote down a little document. My wife and I thought about things we cared about and we should be caring about, in part informed by the first Asilomar study. In the document, we called out 18 topics that we think would be evergreen and important uh, issues to be looked at carefully. And several of them turned out to be more important and a little bit coming to the surface faster than we thought in terms of challenges like AI and democracy, you know, and um, we called it the topic I'm looking at right now, democracy and freedom and uh, AI and warfare, criminal uses of AI, collaborations with machines and so on. So you can read it, this, this list of topics. Um, I think we, they each will cover um, help to, to, to uh, frame studies for generations to come. I've often thought about what's going to happen, uh, you know, like to, to know that Stanford's made this commitment. We have a process with standing committees uh, and then study groups to think about, like, there will be a report almost definitely in, like, you know, 2085. What's it going to say? What's it going to say? And to just even imagine that report with the goal of helping to guide AI and to summarize where things are going uh, and to help with understanding its implications and influences in government, academia, and industry. I'd love to read that report now. <laughs> you can imagine what it's going to say. Time machine, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm staring at the report, actually. It's right in front of me, and it's, it's really intriguing, all the questions, and, and the report is really comprehensive like anybody who wants to learn more about the state of AI today it's I mean it's not a short report but it's not crazy long it's 82 pages that I have in front of me and it has clear sections right there's a section what are the most important advances in AI what are the biggest grand challenge problems and the list goes on and I think one very interesting one I 
I'm curious about is, of course, how should we inform and educate the public? Because that's part of why I'm excited to do things like, like this podcast is give, you know, get information out there. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, what were some of your conclusions in that context? Well, I, we can take my, my, my own opinion on this. I was actually an ex officio member of the standing committee for the first report and stepped back in the second report as more of the consumer to watch how it goes. The report and the questions that it asks, including how are we doing with getting building out more general intelligences? I'm curious to see the answer of that question over the next 100 years. Um, then there's the AI index, which is a separate project that was spawned by the 100-year study that is an annual thunk uh, looking at issues like metrics. Um, you can see the curves every, every year and on how we're doing on various benchmarks or new benchmarks. And they also do sort of, you can get to the AI index at the same place, the ai100.stanford.edu. Um, but they also published a, 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 a kind of list of like nine key, what, what they call key takeaways, which are all very interesting also to look at. Uh, and I found those all fascinating too. So those two projects sit side by side. Now one's kind of a five-year process and then an annual metrics and key takeaways. Yeah, and actually I got a question recently from the AI index report. I'm curious about how that survey will come out because it's, it's very comprehensive. It's not just some people sitting in a room. They sent me a survey and had some very specific questions in this case on over the last five years, each of the past five years, if you bought a robot for your lab at Berkeley, how much did you pay for that robot and which robot was it? And so, I mean, th th this is not just people ideating in a room. This is actually collecting information and trying to really measure the things that are happening. And from there, of course, identify the story around it of what's happening. I mean, I'm just looking at the top nine takeaways this year, came out of the report recently, you know, and to see that, you know, the details of what's being called out. AI investment in drug design and discovery increased significantly with like details on the dollar investments. Industry shift continues where, the, where graduates in North America with PhDs are going. China overtakes the US in AI journal citations and so on. Uh, so it's interesting to look at some of these, these takeaways and we'll see, it'll be interesting to watch every year uh, from the AI index, which also informs the AI 100 study, which is the, the main 100 year study reports. By the way, Michael Littman uh, did a fabulous job as study panel chair this year, uh, as Peter Stone did five years ago at the first report. Yeah, and that's a big part of it is, is finding people who are willing to commit the time, which obviously takes time away from other things. They're typically already very busy, and then they have to cut something out of their schedule to make the time for this. Yeah, to be honest, Peter, that was the uncertainty about both the original Asilomar study um, the AAA sponsored under my when I was president, as well as would we could we pull off um, the AI 100, the 100 year study on AI? Would people believe this was so important as to really take out a chunk of their time and invest? And it was pretty clear to me that it, it had to be from the get go viewed as worth it, viewed as high quality enough, viewed as being impactful enough. And you know, if you're selected to be or invited to be on anything, you want to know, I guess this is like the um, reverse of Woody Allen. You want to know who else has been on that, you know, club you want to join versus the club that would have you, you know, being part of um, the healthier psychological perspective, I think. But the idea of making, making it such that 
the people we invited would be the kind of people technically uh, across disciplines um, as well as per the impact they've been having in the world that you'd want to join and be part of in the future and say, oh, I also, I did, I was on the 2085 uh, study panel. Yeah, I'll, I'll be excited if I'm uh, sufficiently productive still in 2085 <laughs> to be invited to, to that panel. Oh, you're already there, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the, the exciting thing is if I can be productive for that many more years. <laughs> oh, I see. It means to, to be alive and healthy enough to be, be on, the, exactly. on the panel in 2085. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I would probably sign up for that if, if that can be achieved. Um, <laughs> now, Switching gears for a moment here, Eric, you're the chief scientific officer at Microsoft, and that means you directly advise the CEO, Satya Nadella, on everything science, and I imagine a lot of it AI. And so I'm really curious in your conversations and how you see Microsoft and Satya think about the future, how much does AI come up? You know, are, are, are you, you know, asked the question once a year or is this something that actually is really uh, an active thing? Let me just say that uh, I work with Satya, with Kevin Scott, uh, with Kevin's leadership team, he's CTO at Microsoft. And AI is not, and advice and guidance on AI is not just coming with, from me, it's, it's um, AI has become quite central as other areas, I mean, security, privacy, storage, cloud computing efficiencies, but AI has been rising in centrality at Microsoft. Um, in some ways, it's, um, uh, uh, it's, it's a foundation of many things happening at the company. It's amazing to see, for example, large-scale neural models, platform models, or foundation models, and fine-tuning of these models are now being leveraged by almost all of our divisions. It's amazing to see how they're being harnessed and fine-tuned in offerings in Bing and Office Dynamics, the cloud. Uh, and I should say that um, it's not just taking models and harnessing them, it's really pushing on the frontiers of some of the, building out some of the largest neural language models, vision models, and multimodal models that have ever been created that are winning at the top benchmarks, for example, in competitions, a number of which have reached per some definitions, human level and beyond performance. And that goes along with the data, the, the, the infrastructure, and all the back to engineering again, the engineering issues like deep speed, which lets you split jobs across cores, for example. So it's become quite central at Microsoft. Now, let me say that um, beyond advising, it's more like collaborating. Satya Nadella, you mentioned Satya and Kevin Scott, uh, but are quite expert and are following closely. Satya, I found him to be a brilliant engineer, computer scientist. He reads deeply. He focuses tightly on AI advances. He leads intensive cross-group meetings, asks deep questions. He throws out incredible challenges and directions in real time, and he actually will seek follow-up on where the ideas land. And so... Um, well, sometimes the, the subject headers in, an, in, in a meeting coming up that Satya happens to attend will sound like business meetings. They really are like graduate seminars at a leading university, but with a, kind of a deep focus and energy that comes uh, with shipping products to millions of customers. So I wish I had a, there's a way to show some examples of how these meetings go. 
You know, we have this uh, one meeting uh, every year called Disruptive Technology Review. At that meeting, uh, MSR folks, Microsoft Research folks, think through like, what are the key disruptive technologies that will disrupt us or that we can disrupt the world with in terms of big changes, for example. And we have we do invite an outside speaker typically to those meetings. And we've had some fabulous outside speakers in the past. Uh, Mike Jordan came one year, we had Josh Tenenbaum one year. And that's an ex- experience I think they've, they've seen <laughs> up close as outsiders. But I'd like to share more of that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd be very curious. I mean, I don't know how feasible to uh, to record one of these or some of these and uh, put them online. There might be some inter- company internals that, that might be, uh, I guess, rem- need to be removed, but it would be interesting. Yeah, it, it's, it's um, uh, over the last decade, I'd say, the company has gotten more, it's almost like more of a, there's more of an electric spark about AI and it's warranted because it's, the technologies are, you know, have been, um, and their importance and relevance in terms of how we leverage these um, inferences and, and machine learning technology as it's grown and matured in so many aspects of products and services. You can just imagine. I mean, I remember just a few years ago, it seemed sparse. We, you know, we built the first spam filter, which was doing machine learning. And we were so excited because it was like, Machine learning was being used on a platform worldwide, you know, and it celebrated that. And then a few years later, and we did like email prioritization and, you know, smart email kinds of applications. And I remember a few years later, I was so excited to work with the, we had our team work with the operating systems group to do machine learning in the OS, you know, to, you know, the boy, like, you know, Windows was a bounded resource operating, you know, system in the world. And could it figure out how to do memory management in a personalized way for users? That was shipped in, in Windows 7 and it's, it's iterated over time. So, you know, if you're on a Windows machine, it's pre-launching and pre-fetching in the background all the time based on what it's predicting you're going to do next to stay ahead of the uh, the crashing wave of need. Now, that that's really interesting that like predicting what you're going to want to retrieve from your slower memory on your computer already put it ready <laughs> in the cache right. and you just it's it's there. And it's also, it's also even memory management issues. You can imagine when you bring up a web page, if you can control a CPU in a microsecond way, you know at that moment that a human being with a very slow cortex is going to be reading that page and you can back off processors and then come up again right in time with a click. Uh, so there's lots you can do there with energy efficiency as well as with latency in systems. Now talk about energy efficiency. Um and and compute, of course, you mentioned the big uh, language models. That's, I mean, I think to many people, the biggest revolution in AI in the last few years is the fact that if you train a language model on enough data and your model is large enough, it will really surprise you. I mean, maybe less so now once we've seen it many times, but it would really surprise you how good it is at predicting how to complete an article, things like that. That requires tremendous compute, right? And of course, Microsoft has has a large cloud, um, but I'm curious, how, how do you see that play out? And, and what, what is, you know, is the cloud even large enough that Microsoft has? Is, you know, how fast does that need to grow to be at the frontier? We uh, realized um, several years ago that this was going to be the case. We saw, you know, the curves uh, and the need for compute and began a major um, set of initiatives and this includes our working with OpenAI 
to think through and to prepare and to be ready and to be leading in on, at the frontiers in, in, in with, with large-scale neural models. I think that we have to continue to make investments. Right now, um, some of the largest supercomputers, we'll call them AI supercomputers in the world, are places like Microsoft, Google, and maybe a couple of places internationally. And that's also a concern because we know these resources which are required in some ways to do the frontier research are not available to university-based scientists and students. And I know that in our meetings at Microsoft, we feel pretty strongly at the need to democratize and not hoard these systems and thinking through this is why we've been very much a supporter of, you know, significant government uh, efforts to, to figure out how to support university research, uh, as well as leaning in ourselves with programs like we have something called the Microsoft Turing Academic Program, where we share our models with a request for proposal process um, with universities, as well as compute time. And... Um, not sharing them freely yet because of the concerns with their use, uh, potentially uses of you know, offensive behaviors, disinformation, and so on, and poorly understood capabilities that we leads us to want to keep them under wraps right now, but work under license or under proposal with, with teams of researchers. But it's definitely going to be a challenge for research moving forward, uh, and one that we've um, reached out to the National Science Foundation on and had, you know, have been having a dialogue on what it would take to have a models as platform program for the nation. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I think it's going to take um, some source of, of significant funding. And the way I, I mentioned, the way I described this to the National Science Foundation program managers and leadership is we are at a, a disruptive time for computer science or for the science of AI, for people building large-scale neural models. Now, there's plenty of other things to be doing in AI, but... For people interested in issues around emergence, generalization, contrastive learning, um, other kinds of methods, equivariant approaches that are coming to the fore in research, we really need to have a large hadron collider um, national lab approach to this, building huge artifacts and thinking through problems we want to solve jointly because be, it's going to be very expensive. And this is despite expectation that there will be breakthroughs in more efficient computing, better representations that make things more efficient. But I think it's likely going to take a reckoning that we're in a new world now. And if we want to stay out in front and have our doctoral level research and our university scientists cruising along and being at the frontier, there'll have to be some sort of private public partnership and major public investment. I'd love to see that happen, Eric. I, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it's a complete change in many ways. It used to be to run a lab in academia, you got to find support for your students, for your PhD students. That's hard enough. <laughs> the funding rate at NSF is, is, is you know, low enough as is that that's hard enough. Now you effectively have to, you know, add to that another 50 or 100% in cost to support the compute. but it's not clear where, where, where to go get it, where to go ask for it, because it's all, you know, it's not clear. It, this, I think the NSF is not set up with the right budgets at this point to also have right. that available. It's almost like imagine if, you know, uh, 
you were a physicist in the you know 1920s. What was it like when at some point we realized we needed a collider and a cyclotron and you know accelerators and these had to be like major investments like CERN, Brookhaven, and so on. I think for certain aspects of AI, we're getting to that point where per commercial opportunities and needs, the CERNs and the uh, large hadron colliders are being built in just a couple of companies. Now, talking about companies, switching the conversation a little bit, Eric, uh, you've been at Microsoft for a long time. In fact, it's very uncommon uh, for, for people to be at the same company for so long, but it's also beautiful because you've seen it from you know your startup acquired right out of PhD at Stanford, and then you're still there now. <laughs> When we see the evolution of Microsoft, obviously Microsoft was the leader in, in personal compute, uh, won the browser uh, wars in, in the late 90s with Internet Explorer, was doing really, really well. But then, at least from, from the outside, it seemed Microsoft was not doing as well for, for a little while in, in the 2000s. Um, it wasn't coming up as often as, you know, an Apple or a Google or, you know, in, in terms of, and even the acronym FANG, which is supposed to refer to the, the top tech companies, maybe Microsoft happy to not be part of it because a lot of also people who, you know, don't like the top tech companies, but Microsoft is not in the acronym FANG, even though actually in the last five to 10 years, it's really changed. Like Microsoft was the second company to become a $2 trillion company, the second largest uh, after Apple, right? And so how do you see yeah. that process from within Microsoft, from being such a leader to being, at least from the outside, being pushed a bit in the background and then now coming back out at the top? Let me first say that when I, our startup was first acquired and we had this incredible offer to come and help build MSR, Microsoft Research, um, my two co-founders were so excited, it seemed to me. My reaction was, I'll go up with you but I'm staying max six months, I'm out. I wasn't gonna have a life at this weird company that had like Microsoft, you know, Windows 3.11 and Word. It wasn't, it, I can't even imagine they wanted a research team when I first went up there. But I was very impressed and I have a pretty high bar for staying anywhere. So if I've been here almost 28 years, it means something. And so while it's one company, it's been constantly changing and evolving in a very interesting way. So let me first say that I've had the honor of working for three CEOs uh, during my tenure. First Bill Gates, then Steve Ballmer, uh, now Satya Nadella. Um, I've enjoyed each of the intellects and distinct personalities uh, and energy. You know, all are quite different, but all shared an incredible passion and um, optimism for how computing can change the world. And I would say that Microsoft has been doing okay, doing great certain times, even when it was viewed as a slower growth. It was always a place packed with like energy inside, innovation, and doing quite a bit in the world. I think it's true that some of the things that Satya and the leadership team have been doing over, over the last number of years have unleashed even more energy and sparks and things are really flying. You know, when Satya came into his role, it was very energizing the level of reflection about purpose that he brought uh, to the company. He actually asked the question, like, what were we here to do? What was Microsoft here to do? Why do we exist? Thinking deeply about mission possibilities, looking at our role as, at this point, 
very uh, serious one with big responsibility for delivering value to people. I have to say that there's a psychological aspect. Um, the way the leadership has, uh, Satya so leadership team have communicated current, you know, on, on the, the possibilities, but with some courage about the softer, you know, more powerful aspects of motivation and culture to share some experiences. I mean, I've left executive retreats at times, these meetings of the top leadership. I feel like with my, with my fists clenched uh, and, and, and uh, you know, tears in my eyes about what we, what we might do to make people's lives better. And I didn't feel that way in the past. I mean, I've always been really passionate, but like to really think about, okay, this is a competition revolution we're all experiencing. Let's really go for it. And this is really, really serious. And some of the outside experts that work with Microsoft, uh, like this economist, Colin Mayer, with quotes like, let's discover, you know, profitable solutions to hard challenges to people in society as like the reason d'etre. And that has really... Um, that level of refresh has really had effect. You co-founded the Partnership on AI, a nonprofit organization that brings together Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, DeepMind, IBM, and of course, Microsoft around AI to document the quality and the impact of AI. What spurred starting this partnership and how do you even bring what are really competitors together in this single effort? So the idea was to, 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 to stand up an organization and not have it be necessarily led by industry, even though we brought all the big IT companies together via their research teams and research leads, but to build a board of directors that was always going to be balanced, starting out as half the corporate founders and half the nonprofit philanthropic uh, and civil society organizations. So it's been a really interesting, diverse discussion and a diverse approach to thinking through the short-term and the longer-term issues coming to the fore, the best practices, experiences, case studies, analyses, some really high-quality research projects, particularly where the results and the summaries are aimed at people in multiple disciplines. So lawyers can read about facial recognition, for example, or criminal justice decision-making. In 2016, right around the same time, I was thinking of working with Jan LeCun and Demis on pulling together the Partnership on AI, or the organization that came to be named the Partnership on AI, PAI. I was also working internally at Microsoft um, with senior leadership on questions about what was the responsibility instead of processes around AI technologies when it came to safety, fairness, security, privacy issues with data-centric systems, but AI in particular, as these systems edged into the realm of human intellect or to places where people make decisions in the past, a company fielding products and services might have quite a bit of responsibilities of its own. And we stood up what we call the Ether Committee, which stands for AI Ethics and Effects in Engineering and Research. Uh, and um, we set up a, a set of, of working groups, a rich set of, of working groups, uh, and also worked as a company and with Satya in particular on like what were Microsoft's AI principles to start with. Uh, we came up with six that have stood the test of time, fairness, 
reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, transparency, and accountability. And along those lines, set up working groups, uh, typically led by a you know, Microsoft researcher, co-chaired with a, someone else from the product team, and a vibrant group on that topic. The additional groups include human-AI collaboration, uh, it's actually called HAKE, human-AI interaction and collaboration. Uh, the last group was a kind of a process group, which is an interesting group called sensitive uses. And the idea there was to define what was a sensitive use, or say what is a sensitive use of artificial intelligence technologies? How do you define that? And then how do you put a process in place at a company like Microsoft where sensitive uses are identified, either they exist now and we have to analyze them, or a development process is going towards a sensitive use and it's reviewed and there's a committee that thinks through and makes recommendations as to if, when, and how and why that application is being built and can modify where it goes. There's a longer story here. It's now been uh, nearly uh, five years of effort, but about two years ago, the Ether work, which was a committee, uh, as well as working groups and processes and projects um, and a sensitive uses process, ended up uh, evolving a formal legal organization called the Office of Responsible AI and coexists with it as a sister group. So we have Ether and Aura. Ether I look at as the intellectual leadership on responsible AI at Microsoft. Aura is compliance, move sensitive uses into that now. It's a full process at the company. And um, together wrote what's called Microsoft's Responsible AI Standard, now in version two. And I think this will be public public at some point, but it's a very detailed document that the company divisions must follow when conceiving, building, and fielding AI products. It's so interesting that you have, I mean, anybody at Microsoft bring AI into a product effectively has a process now to make sure some sensitive aspects don't get overlooked. It's been a really interesting process and um, one that we're trying to share, we'd like to share with other companies. Uh, and learn from other companies as well and other organizations uh, for feedback over time. Well, I think it's really interesting you brought this all up, Eric, because I think, you know, when you just follow the press, you get the stories where this process wasn't done right, where things were released that shouldn't have been released. And you don't necessarily get informed about the good processes that are in place <laughs> that then don't catch the headlines because it's not nearly as striking when things are going well. Um, but there's a lot of work behind it to make sure things do go well. Yeah. I should say that, look, we're all learning. It's a challenging space. You know, we haven't talked a lot publicly about what we do just yet. I've given some talks, Chatham House and other places about how we're working and trying to learn to be, to, you know, to how a, a large company grapples with this technology and tries to do the right thing with it. But there are cases like, as an example, um, just to throw one out, without going into detail right now, all of a sudden there's this neural TTS, neural text-to-speech, where anybody can speak a few paragraphs into a microphone and within seconds a, a neural model can drive a voice so um, close to your own that it could, it could call your significant other and have you have them write a check. You know, this is a powerful technology and thinking about how it, we would not deploy this generally 
But thinking through all the steps we go through to make it available, for example, let's say to BBC for, uh, you know, a moderator or, you know, an anchor or a newscaster to use, but not make it available for malicious uses and how you, we can control that in a way uh, that, that made sense, as well as how, how to protect people, even people who have long passed away, to not have their voices used without appropriate agreements in place. You just take any one of these sensitive use cases and they're just so rich and interesting as to what we should do as a company, as an organization, as society, as the United States, as law-abiding nations um, uh, with these technologies. Now, that's really inspiring. And now when, we, when you look ahead, Eric, and you think about specifically AI, where do you see some of the, the big opportunities to really bring value to people thanks to AI? getting taken to the next level, next level, next level in the next few years. You know, I started out as a, as a neuroscience PhD, MD-PhD, and I moved over to AI because I just thought we wouldn't make progress. But the mysteries about how these graphs, whether, whether they're cellular or computational, with the power they can have with existence proofs from humans and other vertebrates have always been startling and uh, motivating for me. So... First of all, let me just say that I think there'll be a continuing march in the representation space, the power of various kinds of generalization, leveraging invariances and equivariances. I'm really excited as to where um, multimodal models that bring language and vision together will, will be going. But I think there's a really interesting opportunity uh, for AI, uh, for our, our models, our methods to capture new kinds of um, abilities in the representations utility considerations with abstracting understandings along the lines of what we care about in the world. But I also think that we'll be seeing our stations expand to um, incorporate human abilities and challenges. This human AI collaboration, which is a very uh, important topic. I see um, we already made some progress on, on changing the objective function uh, and methods in machine learning. So they incorporate models of what humans are good at and also understand when to ask a human for assistance or for input uh, or when to come forward. But that's part of the actual learning itself in the representation of the model. So machine learned systems that represent human intellect uh, and understanding within them, applying them in ways that augment human decision-making in a fluid manner. Now, there's a, a whole other area of, 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 I think, that I'm very, very excited about. You know, some people may have seen my interview. My, we did a panel with Yuta Pearl and Yashua Bengio, Susan Athey recently, on what's happening with systems that can reason about causality. It's another scientific direction right now. And how does that fit into deep learning? And that's a, a really interesting area where there's attention and an opportunity. And I think there'll be some interesting work there. Getting into your realm... Peter, you know, it's like I, I see such incredible possibilities of getting of AI getting more physical, uh, learning about the physical world, you know, um, doing talks. You and I talked about of hand precision manipulation. I think when that happens, and I expect it to happen, it'll lead to a, a an explosion of innovation in terms of even what we see around us and what AI is doing in the in the world. Speaking of physicality. Um, I'm really, really bullish and excited about, and we've seen glimmers of this, the machine learning being applied to biology, physics, and chemistry. 
But I really believe that AI is going to be uh, is is the path to supercharging advances in biomedicine. So it's all very exciting for me. It's gotten more exciting over time, uh, uh, our field, even though I've always been superheated about possibilities. I couldn't agree more, Eric. It, it's like every year goes by and yet more exciting things happen. And it's even more exciting to be working in AI than the year before, which, which is so fascinating because with a lot of things you do over time, you might, you've done it so long, you like, okay, let me switch to something else. But somehow in AI, the, the possibilities seem to continue to grow very rapidly, making it every year even more interesting. Even the shared knowledge with people in society about AI and you know, understanding it, understanding its importance. I still remember that to this day, I was in grad school at Stanford and I was talking with somebody at a, at, you know, at a restaurant about AI and I was going on and she was very interested in this. And it turns out at the end of the discussion, she thought I meant artificial insemination the whole time. And so now at least we know it's part of our society. And that's a real story. I mean, it's like, I, I was shocked. I said, no, no, let me explain to you what AI is. Uh, so I, I think it's making progress even with, with a general understanding of where we're going with this. It's definitely part AI. I think not too many people would, uh, would mistake AI for anything else than artificial intelligence these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, we covered so much ground. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolutely wonderful conversation. It's been great talking to you, Peter. It's, uh, it's great to just once in a while step back and reflect together about where things are, where they're going. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really fun to, uh, to do it with your perspective, everything you've been up to. It's, it's amazing. Thanks. Thanks for having me.